Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. This is an encore presentation of Light of the East. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. Well, we were just one month away from the pilgrimage and retreat that I've been talking about here on Light of the East, and for which I was asked to be the spiritual director. So I'll start off with that right away, since we're just one month away. And that again, that trip is a Thursday to a Thursday. That's eight days, October 26th. So as you can see, it's almost one month away, October 26th through November 2nd, October 26th through November 2nd, pilgrimage and retreat to Fatima. And in particular, we're going to spend some time in what you probably were not aware of is a Byzantine chapel. Yeah, beautiful Byzantine chapel. We're going to look at the Eastern lung aspect of Fatima. We will look at Fatima from both lungs of the church and especially, of course, from its message and apparitions. But most importantly, we're going to go there as a pilgrimage and retreat for world peace. So sign up now. We're just one month away. Go to this email, horizons at parma.org, horizons at parma.org. In the subject line, put the name Laura. That's horizons at parma.org. For the pilgrimage trip to Fatima, October 26th through November 2nd, one month away. I'd like to say hello to a few friends here at Light of the East, in particular, um, our good friend Buddy from out in Massachusetts, Believe me, Buddy never misses a step. He never misses a thing. So he's really got our backs here at Light of the East. So we enjoy hearing from Buddy. So hello to you, Buddy, and thanks for being a good friend of us here at Light of the East, for looking after us and staying on top of things. Nothing gets past you, Buddy, believe me. Also, I'd like to say hello to a listener from Lexington, Virginia, Scott Bellavo. Scott Bellavo. Thank you very much, Scott, for your beautiful letter. And Scott mentions that he got inspired to tune into Light of the East by reading a book, which he really enjoyed. It's called Silk Roads by Peter Frankopan. And he got interested, therefore, in looking further into the Eastern Lung of the Church. So he tunes into our program. And he, in particular, he really likes some of our treatments on St. Nicholas, who he has a special devotion to. And there's going to be a lot more of that coming up because in just a couple of months, we'll be celebrating the Feast of St. Nicholas, who is the patron saint of my church, the Byzantine Catholic Church. 
I don't mean just my parish. My parish isn't under the patronage of St. Nicholas. It's under the patronage of the Mother of God. It's called the Annunciation, Byzantine Catholic Church. But the Byzantine Catholic Church in particular, in other words, my Ruthenian jurisdiction of the Byzantine Catholic Church, is under the patronage of St. Nicholas. And at my parish of Annunciation, speaking of that, we have a wonderful celebration based upon St. Nicholas, his actual life and what we know about him. And this happens at an event we call Christmas on the Prairie, and that's going to happen on Saturday, December 2nd, Saturday, December 2nd of this year at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church. You can find out more about it by going to our website, byzantinecatholic.com, byzantinecatholic.com. And speaking of my parish website, you can go there to also look at what I want to talk about today in particular. You can go there to look at the iconography, the icon murals in and also outside of the Church of Annunciation in Homer Glen, Illinois, where I am humbled to be the pastor. It's good for you to look at those icons because, as they say, radio is the theater of the mind, so I will try to make this a bit of a theater because in talking about icons, it's, of course, a visual subject, very visually based, and, of course, radio is more of an audio experience, of course. But we still do have our minds, which means we have our imaginations, and that's one of the beauties, the genius of radio. It allows you to let your imagination be very creative and run pretty wild. I'll try to direct it to an extent, though. But you do need your imagination here to understand, to picture what I'm going to try to picture for you (laughs) through the medium of radio by listening. And that is iconography. Iconography is actually what I might call a canonized art form in the Eastern Lung of the Church. And it's very important to understand several things about iconography, about what iconography actually is. I'm going to make a distinction between iconography and iconology. Iconology. Iconology means the study or the messages contained in images. So all of art, especially art in the Church, is just loaded with imagery, whether in the East or the West, because the art of the church is very, very symbolic because it's referring to the mysteries of our faith, so it has to be symbolic, it has to be always communicating a message, and also is referring to events relative to our faith, the events from the Bible, the events of the life of Christ, the events of the saints, and so on. So iconology is that study or message that's contained within artwork symbolically contained by how an artwork is done, its content, its composition, even sometimes it uses text, it uses words. But iconography, it's, it's a word that I think unfortunately is being used a little bit too broadly today. I even hear it being used in venues which have nothing to do with church art. So that's why I want to be a bit specific about what iconography actually is. Byzantine iconography, and again, notice I'm qualifying that, Byzantine iconography, because when we talk about icons or iconography, we're really talking about that art tradition of the church that developed in the Byzantine church. The Byzantines are the ones that developed iconography as we commonly know it. Now, other churches, such as the Coptic church, the Egyptian church, those Christian churches, Catholic and Orthodox, also have their own style of iconography. But for the most part, when people talk about icons, they're talking about Byzantine-style icons. The reason why I call it a canonized art form is because icons are 
communicating something, that they're conveying a message, they're conveying truth. Sometimes they've been referred to as theology in color or windows into eternity, and that's all true. But there's actually even more that we can say to really understand iconography. And it's important to understand it correctly, because when something is interpreted too broadly, or it's, in a sense, commandeered by too many people who don't really know what it is, it starts to lose its meaning. And then when you see an actual icon, you come across actual iconography, you don't necessarily know what it is or appreciate it. And yet that is the that is the origins of what many people refer to as icons today. So we have to go into that Byzantine style of iconography. Before we get too deep into that, there's something that also is very important. Before we even get into the actual art, it's the why behind icons, the why behind imagery. In the Eastern churches, we celebrate on several Sundays of the year, we celebrate the various ecumenical councils that came about in the early centuries of the church. There are basically seven major ones. Six of them actually have a feast day, a Sunday, in which we celebrate all six together. But interestingly, we segregate the seventh one. It gets its own Sunday. And that council was about images, about art. Now, we might ask ourselves, why would that one, a council about art, why would that one be seemingly put aside as special? Well, that's the big question here. That's the important point we want to make here. The reason it is, and here again, we look at the wisdom of the church, because imagery is an affirmation of the one great mystery, incarnation, the incarnation. Jesus Christ is the image of the Father. It is God in the flesh. It is the invisible God made visible and tangible so that we could see God, feel God, taste God, become God, not equal to God, but become part of his very nature, which we do when we receive Eucharist. In case this all sounds pretty fantastic to you, think about when you receive Holy Communion. You are literally receiving, taking into you the body of Christ, blood, soul, divinity, and we're uniting our soul and body with his. So this is very real, and it becomes real through something physical. So there is something invisible made visible through something physical, and this is what art does, especially iconography. Another reason why that council was set apart is because there was, throughout the centuries, and even today, because heresies get recycled, unfortunately, they get defeated, but then they raise their ugly heads by being recycled under a different name or different sort of form. But there was always an attack on the portrayal of Christ, the Mother of God, saints, in other words, holy things, attack on the portrayal of those things through imagery, whether statues or paintings, mosaics. A lot of this was due to a number of things, one of which was a misinterpretation of verse in the Bible in the Old Testament where God says, thou shalt not make graven images and worship them. Well, God was being very specific there. He did not mean that we could not make images that represent God. And the reason why we know that is because God himself became an image. So basically, case closed. No more argument. But yet, sometimes we still do get these arguments. But it is absolutely important to know that icons, imagery in the church, even if it's not icons, in the Western church, there are many styles of art that developed. 
it's important to know that imagery is important. It is absolutely vital to an affirmation of the central mystery of our faith. But it's also vital to us as human beings. And we're going to talk more about that when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Father Loya invites you to see the new Tabor Life website. That's TaborLife.org. When you land on the homepage, you can see how Tabor Life can help improve your marriage, your life, and how to see the beauty of God's created order in your personal life. On TaborLife.org, you can book Father Loya to speak to your organization about the key elements of leadership, relationships, and sexuality, as well as speak on cultural, social, and political issues. As a renowned artist, Father Loya can speak about how art, liturgy, and prayer fit together. On TaborLife.org, you can see the many ways of how you can communicate with us. And as you look to the lower right-hand corner of the page, Click on the messenger icon for live chat. And finally, Taper Life Institute is a 5013C charitable organization that earnestly needs your support. Click on the support link at the top of the page and donate. After all, Taper Life is powered by you. You're, you're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. This is an encore presentation of Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. We're talking about something very vital to our faith. And that is, and again, it may seem surprising, but it is art. But a particular kind of art, Byzantine iconography. Now, I mentioned that it's vital to our faith, but it's also vital to us as human beings. Because as human beings, we have certain needs. We have needs for imagery. We need to make invisible realities present to us, more tangible, more real, closer to us. And the only way we can do that is by making something invisible. For example, can you put love in my hand? Not a symbol, not a gesture of it, love itself. No. What is it? Is it is it like air? I mean, is it, does it have content or substance or weight to it? What, what actually is love? We, we cannot hold in our hand, we cannot know love itself, except if it is incarnated in some way. Same thing about life itself. You can't put life in my hand. Not life itself, the thing that makes something alive. Not the thing itself, but what makes it alive. You can't you can't see that. It's an invisible reality, but nonetheless, it is a reality. You notice something? The things that are most real in life are invisible. Time, life, love, the value of somebody's life, basic principles in life. These things are invisible, yet they're real. 
And because we are enfleshed creatures, in other words, we have senses, so we, we need to actually see something, feel something, not just think about its invisible reality, but actually to experience it through our bodies, through our senses. Because of that, we need imagery. Imagery makes the invisible present. That's a human need. God designed us that way. And that's why he himself became an image. Sometimes the question is asked, we know that God came to save us because of the fall, of original sin. He came to redeem us. So he became one of us. He died on the cross, suffered, died, and rose. And he saved us. The question sometimes is asked, would God have become incarnate if we had not sinned? Would he have bothered to come to earth, become incarnate? Most of the speculation that I come across on that question would say yes. And this is what we think. Again, this is speculation. We don't know the mind of God. We know that there was a necessity for God to become an image, to become enfleshed among us. But what if there was no necessity, at least not an obvious one like sin? Most, I think, of the best speculation is that God would have still incarnated himself just because it's a way that he would get that much closer to us and we to him. I like that interpretation. So God becomes close to us. These things become real to us through something physical. So we need that. We need something physical. Think about the pictures you carry around, maybe in your wallet or at your desk or in your office. Think about a a flag, the American flag. Think about things that people wear on Sundays. They go to football games. It's like a ritual. They wear the shirt, the jersey of the team. They wear something having to do with the maybe the mascot of the team or different phrases relative to the team. They wear things. They wear pieces of cloth that make the team and all that the team represents more real, more present to them. Essentially, when people dress up and go through all kinds of crazy rituals and actions at a football game, it's their way of becoming part of the game. They can't be on the field. So they still want to be part of the game. And they're part of the game through the sweatshirt or the jersey, the t-shirt, the symbols of the mascot or whatever. But something physical that they actually put on or take in or on makes them feel close, part of the game. Not just spectators, but actually participants in it in the way that they can be. Well, it's the same thing with iconography. Even more so, we need to become part of the reality of God, the reality that the liturgy, the worship of the church communicates. And the way we do that is by physical things, especially by imagery from the candles to the incense to the music to the things that we touch. Notice we use all five senses. Our experience of God is very kinesthetic. That's why he gave us five senses, so we can experience him. And he became an image, he became a person, and fleshed himself so we could experience him kinesthetically. All this has to do with the value of icons and why they are so important and why it's so important for me that they are understood correctly and not just called or referred to in any way. They've got to be looked at correctly, and their value has been understood first. Another reason why they're significant, and this is where we get more into the actual character of the icon, the so-called canonized rules of how to paint an icon. The reason why they're important 
is because they give us, through their canonized rules, and that's my own term, through those canonized rules that make something an actual Byzantine icon, they communicate to us the deep principles of truth and beauty. That's right. When you look at an icon and you really understand, you gaze upon it, it's one of the reasons why they're so attractive or popular, or they have a certain mystery to them. Some people don't like icons. They have a certain mystery to them, and they don't quite understand them. The style is a little different. But most people really are fascinated by icons. They really appreciate it, especially now. But the rules, the so-called rules, I'm going to call it rules, of how to make an icon, what goes into it, even the rules for the person who does the icon, the person themselves, those things actually communicate the inner principles of beauty that God wove into the order of creation. That's right. So when you look at an icon, you're actually experiencing not only something spiritual, but actually something therapeutic. You know, we are what we eat. That is true. Not just with food, though. It's true with our ears, with what we read and what we see. Anything we take in through the senses forms us. We do become that. So when we look at an icon, we become what that icon is communicating. That's why we're drawn into it. And most of the time, we don't quite understand exactly what it is that we're seeing. We just know that we're being touched by it. What we're seeing actually are things like geometric shapes and principles, the golden mean. We're seeing symmetry and balance. We're seeing contrast. We're seeing what's called a hydratic and a narrative dimension of the picture plane. Now, what that means is we're seeing a story happening, and we're also seeing something that is constant, static, eternal, because it's perfect. In other words, we're seeing a little bit of what we learn about in the study of metaphysics, that God, who is perfect being, does not change. So what icons do very cleverly is they generally divide the picture plane almost in half, not exactly in half, but basically in half, meaning there's two different kind of moments going on. One is a static moment, which we call hieratic. Hieratic referring to the higher thing. In other words, it's where in the icon, Christ is portrayed, or the Virgin Mary, or that saint, especially when it comes to Christ, the Virgin Mary. They're more perfect. Of course, Christ is totally perfect. So they have less movement. They're more static in the way they're portrayed. Beneath them or around them, you'll see a lot of movement. Figures moving around, turning, kind of twisting, praying, pointing. That has more to do with the earthly reality. That part is what we call the narrative. In other words, it's showing a story. It's showing something like you're watching a movie almost. It's showing a story unfolding. For example, the icon of the ascension of Christ. There's Christ in the top of the icon. He's in a mandorla, like a brilliant circle held by two angels. He's enthroned in a very, very glorious way, but... Again, he's basically static, and he's sort of set apart at the top of the picture plane. Beneath is all these apostles who are almost like moving back and forth. The rhythm is very back and forth as you look across the icon. And they're all looking and pointing. They're all in dismay because they're beholding something that's incredible. They're holding a vision of heaven. But since they're not in heaven, they're on earth, they still are en route. In other words, we're still always moving. We're always being divinized. We're always in process because we're not perfect. So movement is always a symbol that is used in iconography to 
denote what is happening on Earth among finite human beings. Lack of movement in the icons denotes that which is more perfect. And these two moments, movement and lack of movement actually, are woven together in icons. A lot of people don't necessarily notice that, but when you look very carefully at it, you'll see that. That, together with the design, the composition, the movement of the eye, the light, the shade, the colors, the composition, especially in the intersecting geometric patterns, produces on the eye and in the mind, therefore in the heart and soul, a certain peace, a certain sense of order. It's kind of like when you walk into a room and everything's in order. Think about your own room. You don't like it. You're uncomfortable whenever your room is in disarray. You have to clean up your house or clean up your room. Your bedroom's a mess. There's some clothes all over. The bed's not made. We may do that because we're in a hurry or a little bit lazy or whatever, but we really don't like it. It's visually disturbing, and it disturbs us enough to the point where we roll up our sleeves and we clean up our room. We make order. Same thing, for instance, our desk or our office or a house, our yard, whatever. We like order because order is of God. And iconography, among many things, communicates to us order, God's order. We're going to talk more in other programs about iconography because there's so much more to be learned and said about it. But what's important today is we start off understanding some of the why behind Byzantine icons. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Catholic Radio is, it's training for the troops. It's a inter-aural of the ear boot camp. The folks who listen, who grow in their faith, grow in charity, grow in all the virtues, they then go out and exert an influence far beyond just themselves. Catholic Radio has an exponential effect for bringing people deeper into the faith. Dr. Ray Garendi thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!